0: I'd rather make a little bit of guaranteed money than maybe a lot of maybe money or maybe lose some. Um, it's why I never really I never really liked gambling. I never really got into, you know, the casino or when a lot of people were doing those sorts of things. It just didn't really, it didn't really attract me in the same way. I prefer to be able to manage my own risk. I think from a business perspective, I like to be in control.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Isle of Monday podcast. Today we have property investor, property by Kazi. Welcome to the show.
0: How you doing, brother? You okay? I'm
1: good, thanks. I'm good. I'm good. How are you?
0: Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. I told you. You dragged me back from Dubai. So a little, <laughs> little bit, not really jet-lagged, but a little bit tired. But we, you know, we persevere.
1: <laughs> no, it's good. It's good. So what's, what have you been up to? Do?
0: Yeah, so I uh, was over in Dubai. You know, they always say it's good to have multiple streams of income. So that's somewhere I've diversified into. Um Obviously, from a tax perspective, it works well. And then just having, you know, a different type of business. I think sometimes as well, it takes you out of the monotony of just doing property as well.
1: So what is it that you're doing in Dubai? What kind of business?
0: So, like, we initially started in luxury packaging. So we provide, like, you know, your typical sort of Selfridge-style bag to brands out in Dubai. Um, We then sort of branched into both project management and an element of marketing as well.
1: Okay. How are you finding that space is different to property
0: itself. I think it's very different. Um, I think the good thing about business is a lot of skill sets are very transferable. So, you know, once you kind of understand that, you know, property a lot of the time and business as a whole is a real people business, found the same thing over there that people buy into you. So obviously just making sure you focus on delivering a high level of customer service, making sure you kind of, if anything, under-promise and over-deliver, um, and then just also sort of timelines, due diligence, and like sort of focus the details. Or...
1: Okay, wicked. So, how was uh, Kazi as a teenager growing up?
0: I don't know. I'd like to say I was. I, was, I don't know. How was Kazi? Um, I was alright. Like, you know, I was probably wasn't the best behaved, wasn't the worst, was somewhere, you know, in the middle, got good parents, I think. Although I, I might have not always been exactly. On, you're sort of doing the right thing. I was maybe doing the wrong thing in the right way and I was always sort of polite to uh, adults, you know, teachers, etc. Um, I think always entrepreneurials, so always kind of wanted to make money. Um, and that was like sort of a driver very early on.
1: What kind of things did you try to make money of early on?
0: So, you know, early on, super conventional paper rounds, but then realized, okay, that's not enough money. And obviously the paper round company, they're like, Oh, they pay you more if they put leaflets in it, but only a little bit more. So then I started approaching all of like the local businesses and saying, like, I had a distribution business and uh, you know, they could pay me directly. So like to kind of we get like double and triple the amount. So I think that kind of skill set about sort of really being able to know how to maximize your time is something that's probably put me in good stead for later on in business. So did you
1: actually put the leaflets? In the newspapers? Yeah. So you are getting paid twice for one job?
0: Yeah.
1: Smart thinking, smart thinking. Mm. So when did you start getting into property?
0: Um, I didn't, you know, formally get into property until, I think I was 22. I think when I bought my first property, 22, 23. Probably 23, actually, when I bought my first property. But prior to that, I'd started kind of, I knew that I had an idea. I wanted to get into it, started sort of just being around other developers working out what they were doing seeing how i could use what i had with my time which was i had a car i had you know a hatchback could put stuff in the back of my car i had time so use what i had at my disposal to make myself beneficial to those developers so that i could learn from them and also like create a value proposition for some of those developers as well
1: what kind of things were you doing
0: so to start it I just say, look, you know what, like, let me kind of just come and shadow you off the back of shadowing you, working out what people needed out hey, Okay, so you need somebody that's going to call the suppliers to get, you know, the energy installed. You need somebody that's going to be here to meet the deliveries. You need someone that's going to be doing the oversight. So effectively off the back of starting to do that, rather than say, okay, you know, can you pay me? I'd say, oh, look, how about I take like, a percentage of the profit or percentage of something which again is probably an easier proposition. If you're taking money at the point where everybody's making money, rather than adding to their fixed costs, it's it's sometimes an easier proposition as well.
1: Because how how did you transition from that into your first deal?
0: So I guess whilst doing that, um, I ran another business, which I ran simultaneously to go into university, which was like a shisha business. Okay. So, I think they always say, like, you've got to do something that you enjoy. First time going to Egypt, I was like, this is, this is hard. Like, shisha, something social. I didn't drink. So, it was like, you know, something for me to do. Then I checked into the margins and they were crazy. Like, they were like a thousand percent uplift. Um, so, set up that shisha business, made some money from that. Started doing pop ups, then festivals, then, like, nightclubs. And then, finally, got like a fixed location um, near my uni. Um, so, did that, made some money from that. But basically, the the place that I had, I had a license to trade as opposed to um, a lease. And for those that are familiar with that commercial property, that license to trade is like a tenancy agreement. Effectively, your leaseholder at any point can say, we want you to leave with two months notice. You can't really reinvest. So although I had this business, I didn't feel like I was in control of the asset. So I think that kind of pushed me towards saying, okay, how can I control the asset? How can I, because the place had a massive basement, it had all this potential but I didn't have the correct contract or the correct ownership in place to be able to be able to actually add that value.
1: So what kind of money were you making from your Shisha business? Was it like sufficient for you or? Uh,
0: yeah, I mean, it, it was enough for my for my lifestyle and it was enough to save some money. So I think when I went into my first deal, I had, you know, maybe sort of 80, 90 thousand pounds that I saved up from business um, that I was able to go and buy a property at auction or auction. I don't know if it was auction, but I know I used a bridge and loan.
1: Okay. And what kind of things did you learn from your Shisha business as well? Um, so
0: I think definitely just learn about, it's a lot of customer facing roles. So, you know, obviously, learning about actually getting retained customers, getting people to come back, making sure you keep people happy, learning about actually marketing is a big thing because, you know, just because you've opened a shop doesn't mean people are going to turn up. Yeah. So actually understanding how to build a brand, looking at I think so that was kind of my first dive into the Instagram world as well. Okay, like, you know, what was working then, you know, isn't, isn't necessarily going to work now and understanding that you've got to be very current when it comes to the social media side of things. Um, also how important your network is So the people that you have around you being able to leverage like, you know, their friend groups, your own friend groups to actually be able to, for the people that are going to buy from you in in the first place, a lot of the time are going to be friends, family, people who actually either like you or buy into you as a person.
1: So what kind of steps did you take like to build your first brand or to build that brand?
0: Um, So I think I'm naturally quite risk adverse. So, in terms of the building a brand, it was more about proof of concept. So, to start, we've invested a small amount of money to buy a small like, number of the Shisha pipes um, and basically created a value proposition. So, that was going to existing venue owners and saying, Look, like, I've got the Shisha, I've got something I can provide. Now, right now, I don't want to sign a big contract to pay you all this money or I don't want to you know, take over the space. But what I can do is I can offer it to, and I can sell it directly to the end user, to the consumer. You can advertise it on, you know, your website, flyers, etc., to say that we have Shisha now. So you've got a USP. You don't have to pay for the, um, the labor. You don't have to pay for the materials. You effectively just get an additional product to get people that are going to come and spend, you know, spend money on the bar. So effectively creating a win-win, like a value proposition um, for myself and for the, like, for the businesses I wanted to work alongside
1: and then what about the social media aspect Uh, what is it that you were doing that was building your following building your brand and essentially building your customer base?
0: yes i think from from, uh, the social media side of things it wasn't just social media that kind of because if i'm honest like social media for me was very much accidental i wasn't the guy who was like the go-to social media guy like if anything like when my social media started to do quite well like my friends would laugh and say you you barely know how to turn your phone on sort of thing but um at the time, it was more just, as opposed to social media, just general marketing. So knowing that we were in close proximity to the university, going down to the university when they're having like their freshers' weeks and their freshers fairs, and speaking to people and saying like offering deals, like you said, doing like you know things that you early on, like leafleting campaigns, very direct things. Um, but then also saw the power of you know social media in terms of using the early on blog pages that were like, you know, people's go-tos, when everybody followed these blog pages and actually speaking to them, offering the owners, like, oh, you can come down for free if you want, you know, if you post it, and things like that that worked quite well
1: early on. How were you deciding, like, your marketing budget? Was it structured or were you just, like, spending in the early stages?
0: Um, I think early stages, and I wouldn't necessarily advise, this, but early stage it was very much very ad hoc. So it was like, okay, you make some money, you spend some money, and when you make money, you reinvest it. As opposed to, okay, this is our marketing structure and this is our marketing budget that we're gonna, you know, have over the next. So we there wasn't we I didn't really look at long-term timelines at that point.
1: Okay. And then what what's happened to that change your business now?
0: So when I got into property, again it was a case of having the premise, didn't have the longevity. And it's probably something, that ironically, full circle. I'm in conversations and I've looked at venues over the last couple of years. Obviously, if the back of COVID, it sort of delayed things as well. But it's something that I would get back into. But when I got into property, to start, of, I was doing both. So it was a case of, you know, she's your business, we were open till 1am. By the time you get home, it's two something. Property starts super early in the morning and it was just burning a candle at both ends, wasn't sustainable. And one of them, I could see the longevity in, which was the property, which is why I focused there. But like I said, now, you know, there's, there's more capital that I can just say, okay, I'm going to put money into something. Then we are looking at getting back and reopening the premises. But that's, you know, like, what, eight years, eight, nine years on. So I think for those kind of budding entrepreneurs, it's, you know, you don't have to do everything all at once. What would your take Would
1: you do anything differently now compared to when you first started it? Eight, nine years on.
0: Um, in terms of if I was going to do a venue now, yeah, I think like in terms of, like I said, so particularly that like, the type of contract that we had that we were trading under, the like, understanding specifically different areas have different attitudes towards, you know, whether it's development, whether it's, you know, opening a business. So actually focusing on an area that has quite a positive attitude towards maybe shisha bars because it's going to give it more longevity. Yeah.
1: Okay. And then what was the first deal that you got? Because you you got that on a bridging loan, said.
0: yeah, so the first deal um I'm pretty sure it was an auction purchase um, I'm pretty sure it was an auction purchase, and it was a bridging loan um, that I used to buy it. It was a one bedroom flat um, from a housing association, quite a you know rundown unloved state um could see the potential to improve the obviously condition of the property, looking at the relative comparables, but also because it had that large separate kitchen, the opportunity to take it from a one bed to a two bedroom flat, which is really where a lot of the value is. And you know, in a market like we are now, where it's in, in a lot of full to intents and purposes, it's more of a buyer's market you know, if you are buying property, that you've got to really be able to force that value of the property up. You can't just rely on the market sort of dragging you along with it. Um, so it's a strategy that worked then and it still works now. Um, and I think for effectively once you did that deal, that was like my proof of concept to say, okay, you know what, this, this makes sense.
1: So was it then just a case of rinse and repeat?
0: Yeah, for, for the most part, for a period, it was a case of rinse and repeat and then obviously go on and do bigger deals and bigger projects, but very much so, you know, um like outside of property like my background's economics so like I live like in the numbers I live in my spreadsheets for those that follow the property by Kazzy page you'll see that like my spreadsheets are like eight pages long with what if analysis and you know a summary page and all of these things to really understand you know that what impact changing factors have on the deal um and really I've always been guided by what do the numbers say so whether or not There's no point in my career, I'd say I wouldn't go and do a one to two bedroom flip, even if I was doing, you know, massive developments, if the numbers made sense and it was a good return on investment.
1: It's just fact, isn't it? Numbers. Yeah, I think that's that's the thing where if there was once there was a um, auction where we offered, I think it was about three thirty thousand max and someone offered about three seventy. And what happened is, after a while, that property came to us to sell. But he said he'd done his numbers all wrong. It was his first deal. I think he was either going to break even or make a loss of 10,000. But when you're in the property space, your numbers have to be spot on. to To make a loss on a property deal, when you've done pretty much everything right. So it's not, it's not. Yeah, a good well,
0: the numbers do, they insulate because things can change like, you know, base rates are going up on a quarterly basis at the moment, during COVID, some things like steel, timber, um, glass were going up, like, you know, 50% over a very short period of time. There are going to be these what if factors, but buying at the right price is what is going to allow you to worst case, make less profit, as opposed to having to hope you sell it for maximum values. I think there's two things. You buy at the beginning and you buy smart at the beginning, but you also make sure you think, okay, who is my end user going to be and make sure it's fit for purpose? Because I've seen deals where like, I've seen friends that early on went through their first property, overpersonalized it, sold this deal, and they thought this was an amazing deal. I've done this great refurb. They had like a black kitchen in it, black gloss kitchen with blue LED lights, a super masculine kitchen. The day after they sold that property, that kitchen was in the skip. No way. Like, but as a brand new reefer. Now, if they potentially had said, you know, do it a little bit more generic, kind of think about the end user as a, not a bachelor, but as a family home, they may have got an extra 10,000 pounds because yeah, the people yeah. aren't factoring in, I need a new kitchen. So, it's a bit of give and take. You have to do the numbers right and you have to obviously also make sure you do the design right as well. And I think that's something a lot of people sometimes neglect.
1: So you say you're risk averse. How does that affect you in terms of the numbers?
0: I mean, it means that I probably haven't made as much money in a lot of of cases that I could have. Last month, so we got like the PBK community now, which is like a community of property investors. And a lot of the time people say, can I JV with you, X, Y, or Z? So we had an opportunity to do a JV. Now I've done my numbers on this deal. Deal I like probably good return on investment. It was looking at about 39% on, on, um, on capital employed got a JV partner on board. They were fine. Um, we were, we went ahead. My maximum bid based on the numbers was three hundred thousand. So because it was an online auction, I bid three two nine five. The next bid was three hundred. It sold for three hundred. Now obviously I could have gone that little bit more, but in my head I'm like, look, that's where my numbers were, and I just stuck to it. And I think it's an example that realistically I could have done that deal and maybe I would have gone to 305, and it, or it could, it could have gone higher, but I could have bought it for 305. But because I'd say, look, this is where my numbers say that the deals make sense, I'm able to just say, look, have a very clean cutoff point.
1: Have you always been like, risk averse in terms of, like, even when you were younger?
0: Um, yeah, I'd say so. Like, I'd say naturally, like, you know, I'd, I've been, yeah, naturally I've been quite risk adverse. I've always kind of just looked at things and said, hmm, I'd rather make a little bit of guaranteed money than maybe a lot of maybe money or maybe lose some. Um, it's why I never really, I never really liked gambling. I never really got into, you know, the casino or when a lot of people were doing those sorts, but it just didn't really, it didn't really attract me in the same way. I prefer to be able to manage my own risk, I think from a business perspective, I like to be in control. Yeah. And I think when you, the more risk you take, the less control you have.
1: I think it's interesting because a lot of people in business, they tend to say they like taking risks mm. and a lot of people do say take your risks, but then your risk-averse strategy works for you. And it's mm. not necessarily low risk, low reward. Mm. It's more staying in control and you're staying in control for your spreadsheets.
0: Yeah, it's like it's risk mitigation. So for example, There's times where I've been offered bigger deals. But then when I look at the numbers on the bigger deals and I'm like, okay, I could do this deal. And it's got, for argument's sake, like a 39% return on investment. But the additional risk factors mean that if I do another deal with a 36% return on investment, but they have way lower risk factors, my actual return is better on the lower percentage in terms of because there's an, an element of risk that is the what if that is the unknown and unquantifiable yeah. in the larger deal um, and don't get me wrong like I think now obviously I'm looking at some much much larger projects but it's because I've got to that point where I feel a lot more comfortable
1: and that's where your experience kicks exactly,
0: in exactly and, and experience mitigates risk
1: when when you do your refabs, how are you calculating the projects now because construction prices I said steel timber from COVID has just gone up.
0: Yeah, I mean it depends. Like obviously, if if we're doing ground up, then kind of just got to work off sort of price per square metre, pretty much, as subject to it not having like you know a massive basement or something like that. They kind of they are where they are. If depending on obviously the the construction methodology, but you could, you kind of know where they are. Ironically conversions and renovations are a bit more what if because you're dealing with buildings that are at the moment 100 140 years old some of them you know that you take down the wallpaper and the wallpaper was what was holding up the walls so you have to kind of more go off precedence as opposed to you know just the initial quotation i think i don't know for yourself but generally speaking sort of you know like a 10 percent contingency in terms of from a budgeting perspective
1: that's generally what we do as well. Yeah. But recently what we found is where house uh, where renovation would cost 100 to 120, now you're looking at closer to 170, 180.
0: Yeah, like prices have definitely changed. I think there is scope in the market for some correction on that because I think what was happening is prices were down here and people were quoting down here. Now, material prices were steadily going up because of Brexit, there was an exodus of labour, which meant labour prices also went up which meant that there was an undersupply and an over-demand for good builders, which meant people were kind of just charging what they want. And there hasn't been a re-establishment of a going market rate. And I think as demand slows slightly, you know, due due to a number of like factors, both economic and other, that there's gonna be a re-establishment of market price. Because I think what was happening a lot of the time is people were so scared about prices going up, like from a top level. If you're running a construction company and your labor costs are going up, your material costs are going up, like, you know, your interest costs are going up, all of these things are going up. You're quoting here just in case it gets to there. Whereas as they kind of standardize the pricing again, then people can standardize the margins they want to make. So I'm not saying they're going to drop down to that 130, 140, but maybe from 170, they kind of restabilize at 155, for argument's sake, for that same refurb.
1: Where are you seeing the property market going now?
0: I mean, that, you know, there's, there's the old adage, obviously, you know, in terms of like UK property. It's not time, you know, I'm not trying to time the market. It's about time in the market. And I think as much as there are going to be changes and we're seeing it with, you know, there was talks about, you know, rental caps and now the rental reform bill and different things. You know, the, the reality is we live on a small island with an infinite amount of space. It's one of the most desirable, particularly in London, That's one of the most desirable cities to live in. I think it's, it's forever been in the top five cities to live in in the world. Um, there's forever going to be that demand that unfortunately the supply can't match. So, you know, prices are going to continue to go up over time. In the short term, with the impact of... Um, you know, political factors like um, Ukraine and Russia, you know, economic factors, both uh, monetary and fiscal that, you know, I think we are going to see a contraction in, you know, maybe the end of sort of Q4, going to start to see that, you know, some properties start to struggle a little bit more. Those people that maybe, you know, were quite comfortable when rates were at, you know, 2% with them going up to four and a half, five 5% are going to really see the pinch and you're maybe going to see some people, particularly because of um, changes in taxation as well to buy to let properties, you're going to see more properties come to market. If there is an oversupply for a short period, those that are duress sellers or have to sell under pressure are going to sell for slightly less. And I think there are going to be some deals to be had from a, from if you're a, from a buy-in, from a property perspective, from an investing perspective. But I think over the longer term, you know the, the, the property prices are going to stay pretty, you know, pretty much where they are for the foreseeable future. And then it will be down to sort of government intervention. Is there going to be a new help to buy a scheme or something similar? We've already seen, you know, like the zero percent deposits and things like that come back. So um, I think it's really just down to market forces effectively.
1: We've seen quite an like, interesting kind of events. We've seen uh, buyers come in and offer lower and we've also seen buyers come in and offer above asking as well mm-hmm. so we've seen both and what i've noticed is investment properties the two-bed flat which are not nice to live in but they're good to rent out because they still come under good rent when they're advertised at three to five and the values around that people are coming to offer about 300 the properties where people are coming to live in maybe people's mm-hmm. second homes where properties advertised at 500, we've had offers at 520, 525, mm-hmm. and people willing to spend 150 grand, 200 grand, just doing it up. Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen that, but I think short term, there'll be slight up and down, but long term, I think it will go up. Um, mm-hmm. And I think from the 2008 recession, it was the same impact, it went down slightly, and then the prices went up, I think about 30, 40%
0: yeah and i think you know that's it. it's just it's just basic supply and demand like unfortunately there's been no time where the government's met you know the supply of housing like in terms of what the the quotas were supposed to be so that house prices are continue going to continue to go up particularly you know if you do create a good product at the end of the day for everybody not property is not an investment for everybody it is a home for you know for the majority of people and if you create that product that's very desirable In the same way that people pay a premium to have the brands they want when it comes to what they wear clothing wise or what they choose to eat people paid a premium to have the comfort of where they want to live and have the type of property that they want to live in
1: and also the demand for rental properties is still going through the roof because there's people still coming into the country we put a job advert out for sales role and a admin role but both of them, we had probably 40% of applications were from like India, uh, Ghana, Nigeria. Mm-hmm. And people are still coming into the country. And even if you look at the medical sector mm-hmm. in healthcare, the nurses who are raised here, born, they're going abroad because they're, mm-hmm. they're getting paid more. Yeah. Same as the doctors. We're getting doctors again from the poorer countries. Mm-hmm. And because they all come in here, they need a place to live. And the doctors are going to live like doctors. So they want good a good product or a good home rather than just someone who just bought a standard two-bed flat which isn't a good standard
0: and and the reality is when you look at the market like you know although people are, rates have gone up considerably from where they were they're still not crazy so your first time buyers are still buying because it's still cheaper because rents have gone up by so much to pay your mortgage yeah. you know than it is to to pay the rent your people that are not first time buyers they've benefited from prices going up considerably so have a considerable deposit so potentially can buy their second home or their you know their forever home at a much more you know reasonable price so you know in in terms of the the market sub kind of a million pounds i think it's still very strong
1: there was a recent property market report that came out and it said 10% of landlords are leaving the market Mm -hmm. why do you think that is and do you think it's a good idea long term to leave the market
0: i think there's a lot of accidental landlords There's a lot of landlords that you know I own a property, partner owns a property, move in together, and now you end up like as a landlord when realistically it was just your home and I think for those people that were accidental landlords don't necessarily have they didn't buy maybe in an area that yields the best or didn't look at um you know amenities or didn't look at transport links. And so, and also maybe the property isn't structured in a way where it's the most tax efficient, sort of with changes in taxation laws to properties that are owned in your own name. Realistically, even if you're get benefiting from capital appreciation over time, if, you know, it's losing you money on a yearly basis, when we say, you know, is it a good idea? For some people, it's not optional. It's like, if it's losing me money, unfortunately I've got to sell the property. And I think there are a lot of the people that we're seeing selling now like that being said, we're seeing you know, institutions, banks, making commitments to buy significant amounts of property in the UK you know, real estate space, which obviously I, I have a saying, which is kind of follow the money. When you see like big players doing certain things, it's general indication that they've done enough market research to say that actually it makes sense. So I, if you see Barrett Homes are building out you know, a 4,000 unit scheme in a certain area, if you've got a block of four flats that you're developing, chances are you're going to do pretty well because they would have done the research to say that this actually makes sense. So I don't necessarily think it's it's a good idea that these people are leaving the market, but everything is sort of opportunity, isn't it? People leaving the market, if there is going to be additional stock added in, then it's an additional potential opportunity to buy stock up at a cheaper price.
1: I think for landlords, like accidental landlords, if, they're, if if they're if they're like don't have not entered property as a business mm-hmm. or as an investment they're just seeing property as a passive income and it's paying the rent but mm-hmm. as soon as their interest rates go up and all of a sudden they've got to put money in or their return is very very little then they're going to think you know what mm-hmm. let's just leave and then do something else because either number one they don't understand it number two they don't like it or it's just something that they don't want to stress off yeah and um, i think that's a lot of the reason we're seeing landlords leave the portfolio landlords they're either buying up, uh, like you said, banks, Lloyd's coming to buy 50,000 homes, mm-hmm. I think they're looking to buy a block in Romford. Um, we've got like, clients like banks in Abu Dhabi, they're looking to buy up stock and they're looking at both the private let market and the short let market. Um, mm-hmm. So, if you're looking at following the money, they see longevity here in the UK mm-hmm. um, and they're in Dubai where people are saying, Buy in Dubai.
0: Yeah. No, definitely. You know, you're definitely still seeing a lot of people buy and it definitely still makes sense. Obviously, it just has to make sense for you personally and sometimes, you know, restructuring. So you mentioned there about, you know, some of the banks that are buying in the shortlets. And for some people that are maybe, if you are that accidental landlord that's struggling, maybe rather than sell up, it is a case of, okay, can you repurpose? Can you now use that property as serviced accommodation? Would it maybe work as an assisted living property? Like, how can you like operate in the times that you're in because it's not always a case of just saying let's give up but sometimes it's a case of okay so let's adapt the market has changed
1: what what is it that made you go to dubai when you wanted to open or have a secondary stream of income
0: so do you know what it was a case of like every time i've done something it's always it's never been full on by a design to say okay i want to go over here and i want to do that like I was visiting um, a friend of mine, who's now my business partner over there, and we were just talking and we were talking about both our strengths and some of the opportunities and the business kind of just c- like created itself off the back of opportunity, off the back of saying, okay, you know what, let's try something because we have these opportunities there and effectively without doing anything, you're sort of just leaving, leaving money on the table. So it was that, it was the fact that I had a good partner that I would able to work alongside, um, which was helpful. It was the fact that we saw the opportunity, the culture of the country, you know, was something that was really appealing to me. The culture of business over there and opportunity. Um, and then just also enjoying it as like a second home almost as well. So it just ticked a number of boxes.
1: What is it that, about the culture that made it appeal, appeal to you?
0: Um, you know, I think there's very much like when, when you meet people over here, like sometimes things can be very cagey. Everybody plays their cards very close to their chest, whereas I think there's almost a culture. If somebody likes you, it's like, you know, let me show you what I can do for you. It's kind of like the business ethos. So it meant that, you know, you can kind of get into doing bigger things at an earlier stage.
1: Do you find it easier to learn about different businesses there as well?
0: yeah I think like I said I think people because I think people are less cagey yeah. people are very much more so okay like so what can we do like how can we do business as opposed to what do you do this is what I do and then let's just sort of leave it at that there's a lot more okay like how can we be collaborative how can we you know wh- what can you help me with what can I help you with and vice versa
1: I think over here in UK it comes a lot of people are trying to find out just for the sake of knowing mm-hmm. whereas I think in Dubai or because it's such a business hub like everyone there is for business or everyone's there mm-hmm. for work um, people want to know to explore opportunities mm-hmm. and it's easy to connect people because everyone's there for business like you know Kazis in property let's mm-hmm. um, connect Kazzy with James for example mm-hmm. um, and I think that plays a big impact on why I've seen a good few amount of people recently make their way over to the Middle East
0: yeah I think you know that like they have the conversation about it sometimes they can be very much like you know growing up as Londoners like a crabs in the bucket mentality that like you just everyone's trying to get their way out but pulling each other down at the same time as, as a means to do that as opposed to uplifting each other and having more of like an abundance mindset and I think it doesn't matter if you go to the Dubai or you go to Canary Wharf or you're in you know in these areas and you're looking up and you're saying look like there's millions and billions of pounds being made on a daily basis and like all you need is a small percentage of that like on a daily basis to you know to be in a totally different space and i think when you kind of embrace that mindset of more abundance that like somebody else making money isn't going to stop you from making money then you end up in a way better place like way quicker
1: i think here as well it's you don't tell anyone your secrets uh, because someone else is going to copy it. Yeah, like so I, that shop's going to copy me.
0: Yeah, like I remember at the beginning, like when I first started doing like the Instagram lives during lockdown, and then like a couple people I had on, like I'll just ask them a question, like, oh, so like where do you like where do you invest your HMOs? And they're like, oh, I don't really want to say. And I was just like, yeah, gay. Okay. <laughs> But it's like, the reality is like, you know, somebody else going to do a HMO, all they're going to do is like, I, I, like I mentor people that be like, okay, I want to know where to buy HMOs. And I yeah. tell them, I'll introduce them to my contacts, like, you know, in the HMO department, because the reality is like, they then building relationships as well, that hopefully, as long as like, you all have the same mindset that's mutually beneficial. And I think that concept of, you know, a lot of the people that I've worked alongside, whether they were further along, whether they were behind me, like, you know, if you have a mentality that you want to see those other people that you genuinely like win, like your wins will help each other out.
1: And I think also with social media, your reach is now global. Mm. Whereas, for example, if you just got a news agent across the street, your reach is just the people who pass by. Yeah. But when your reach becomes, when your reach becomes global, you've got enough people in the world, and like you said, you have seen a small percentage of people to trust you. And that's where you're making your business from then
0: Yeah, like I think You know, and it's You're not always like You're not always on social media directly to do business Sometimes just on there Because like when I started out like, There wasn't any, like I said, same thing Like when you asked about the businesses There wasn't a plan of Oh, I'm going to start this social media It was just a case of, you know what I'd had this funny conversation actually Ironically with my friend in Dubai like, And it was like Because her my friend's wife's, uh, my friend's wife's brothers are all kind of up to no good. And they, but they, the mum just like she's quite, she just knew us all together as just them them young boys. But she would see me in a tracksuit all the time and think, oh, like, I'm just up to no good. So when a friend was, like, my, my friend's wife was telling them, nah, like Kaz is, he does property. She was like, yeah, okay, whatever. Like you know, so it was funny. So I was like, oh, you know what? Let me actually start doing it because there's gonna be people that don't really know what I'm doing and just think, you know, I'm maybe doing whatever. Yeah. do not see me. So it was a case of doing it and then start to have conversations. And even sometimes when I can't be bothered to do property, like I can't bother to do the Instagram side of things, then I'll go out and I'll go out to like Brixton Pop or something and I'll meet somebody like, oh, you know, I bought my first house because I watched this video. And I'm like, oh, that's so, outside of just, I'm going to go and make money, it's like putting information out there creates opportunity and creating opportunity is where you start to obviously create your own luck. So like when I was out in Dubai, I literally on the way here, I had a phone call with somebody who I met in a club in Dubai and he was like, yeah, just take my number. Then he happens to be a footballer and was like, yeah, I want to give you this money. But but it's just like, he was like, I've been watching your videos for ages. But there was no intention at that point in time to be like, oh, let me go and build this brand. But I think there's a concept that, you know, successful people are lucky because they're proactive. They're not not just successful because they're lucky.
1: And I think also you're... Because you're giving out information, it's all free, mm. and it's all uh, correct information. People are trusting you more. Mm. And yeah. when people trust you, whether you're looking for it or not, people will always remember you. Yeah, of course. And if someone becomes interested in property investment, mm-hmm. they'll look at y- the knowledge that you've given mm-hmm. out. So they'll either approach you or, mm. like you said, you met someone randomly and he's like, you know what, mm-hmm. let's do some business. And I think that's the key thing about social media. It's, Essentially, it's content marketing, but giving away information away for free.
0: Yeah, because like the, the thing is, like if you can help people, the chances are that when you can't provide everything. So obviously, I'm at like High Castle Estates, right? And like you might do a lot of the different processes. So I know, you know, you guys do the lettings, the sales, renovations, X, Y, and all these different. But it might be something that. You don't provide EPCs. If a client calls up and says, Oh, have you got any and you provide them a good EPC provider? And they're like, oh, have you got anybody that does like interior design? Oh yeah, I know this person. So because you've been that go-to person, they're gonna come back to you for the services that you do provide as well.
1: And then they go to someone else and they mm-hmm. refer and it becomes yeah, a, exactly like an effect.
0: ecosystem of like you know, of just effectively doing business.
1: What's one advice you'd give to someone who wants to start out in business?
0: Um <sighs> Do something that you enjoy because it's going to be a two steps forward, one step back, one step forward, two steps back. And if you don't enjoy it, you're going to get to a point where you're going to have burnout. So I think you have to have some element of, the, not everything, but some part of the business that you genuinely um, enjoy. And the motivation has to be more than money, because if it's just money that you, like, that you as Money gets boring after a while. Money gets like, well, I've got enough or there's always more to get. So I think definitely try and focus on something you actually get an element of enjoyment out of.
1: Do you think people need motivation or discipline? Or is it better bit of both?
0: I think you've got to understand you. Like, because some people are naturally disciplined but naturally don't have motivation. So I think, you know, one thing that I always advise people to do, and maybe this is maybe an answer to your previous question, is do some personal analysis on yourself. Understand what your attitude towards risk is. Understand what kind of learner you are. Understand like, what your shortcomings are, what your strengths are. Do that personal SWOT analysis and use that to work out where you need support or potentially who you should get on board as a partner or as an employee, because there's no correct answer to, do you need motivation or do you need discipline? Like, some people are naturally disciplined and, and, but not naturally motivated and vice versa. Yeah,
1: that's very true actually. Um... If you were, if you were sitting next to Kazi, who's fifteen years old, what is it that you would tell him? Um,
0: I'd tell him, listen, enjoy your long hair; it's not going to be there forever. Enjoy the camros. I'd tell him, you know, I mean, there's there's loads of stuff like I'd there's loads of stuff obviously in hindsight from an investment perspective and stuff that we know. But I think I would tell myself as a 15-year-old, yeah, just find something to focus on and be the best at that because everything else can come off the back of being really good at something in particular. Like if you're the go-to guy for something like we spoke about in business, you can then do all these other things or you can invest in, or you can take the money from that to invest in all these other opportunities. And it's like a premise that we learn in economics that like there's always benefits to trade if, and specialization. So if you specialize, if I specialize in one thing and you specialize in one thing, like I specialize in making wheat, you specialize in, you know, making flat, like making grain, for example, like, we will both do that most efficiently and then I would buy the other from you and we would still both be more productive on the back end.
1: It's like I was just speaking with a solicitor today Mm. and he said there's one person who used to be a property conveyancer, I think he used to be a partner at a law firm and his friend was good in tech. They came together and they built a product which fast tracks the conveyancing process. Mm. And you know how difficult a Mm conveyance process can be, but it's two heads who are experts in their game and now they've created a product, which I can't remember how many employees they have, but I think it's about close to 200 now. Mm. Um, but it's, again, becoming the best and then becoming the go-to people as well.
0: Yeah. And so in like, business is really about solving a problem. Yeah. Like, in most cases, you've got to solve a problem or solve, like, a desire. So if it's, you know, the speed of convincing and you know from being in the industry, if you can find a solution to that, you know you're you're gonna be onto a goldmine. One hundred
1: uh, percent. Just before we finish, we'll have a quick fire round. Mm-hmm. Favorite food. Uh, I'm
0: gonna I'm gonna have to say pizza recently because I've been killing a pizza in Dubai, man. Papa John's has been has got me in a headlock.
1: My favorite holiday destination.
0: My favorite place I've been to is is Cuba. followed closely by Jamaica.
1: Okay. Uh, favorite book. Um, what's my
0: favourite? I don't know if it's my favourite, but a book I reread Sapiens recently. And I found that it was just a very interesting concept of the world.
1: Favourite movie?
0: <sighs> movie, movie, movie. It's a bit cliche. Probably Goodfellas, if not Casino.
1: And favourite day?
0: Day? Date, like a date night?
1: No, favourite day. Day oh, of
0: the week. Oh, day of the week. Ah, it's got to be Sundays, man. <laughs> Chill <Cheer up. laughs> out. It's got to be Sundays, man. A little football on a Sunday. It's like football in the morning. My team is what? Arsenal. Ah, uh, you butlers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. No, listen, you got to be in it to win it.
1: <laughs> uh, Kazi, thank you very much for coming on. No problem. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you very much.